You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, Episode 41. Today, we're sitting down with wildlife and landscape photographer Juan Pons from Maine to talk about connecting with wildlife subjects in a safe and respectful way, helpful skills and settings for wildlife photography, tips on composition, and more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hello, my friends, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. Before we dive into today's interview, I just have a brief announcement in case you missed it in the last episode, and that is I'm holding a little giveaway contest, which is a license for a year of unlimited online backup with Backblaze. Backblaze is the cloud backup storage that I use for offsite backup for my photos, videos, this podcast, and more. It is very important to have an offsite backup of your data in case of a hard drive failure or worse, theft or fire and things like that. And I've used Backblaze for years and I highly recommend them. So if you want to show your support for the podcast and enter for a chance to win the license, all you need to do is leave a rating and review by January 15th on Apple Podcasts. And if you aren't an Apple user, you can leave a rating and review at outdoorphotographypodcast.com. And I'll draw names at random and announce the winner later in the month. So thank you and good luck. I'm excited to introduce you to our first guest of the new year, Juan Pons. One of our Outdoor Photography School newsletter subscribers, Arlene Courtney, had recommended Juan as one of our highlighted photographers, which is part of the OPS Digest that comes out on the last Friday of the month. And I'll put a link in the show notes if the OPS Digest is something that you might be interested in checking out. Anyway, Arlene participated in one of Juan's workshops and thought very highly of his approachable teaching style and field instruction. And I then had the pleasure of meeting him at the Out of Acadia conference in October. And I think as you'll hear in our conversation today, he's just an all around nice guy. Before we roll the interview, allow me to give you a little background on Juan. Juan Pons is a nature and wildlife photographer with over 30 years experience with a passion for photographing our world's most magnificent features. Born and raised in San Juan, Puerto Rico, Juan is an avid conservationist and environmental educator and has traveled extensively leading photography workshops out in the field and in the classroom for more than 18 years. Juan's adventure expeditions have taken participants to once-in-a-lifetime places like Antarctica, Cuba, Alaska, Costa Rica, Yellowstone, and much more. Juan's decades of work have made him a recognized expert in wildlife photography and Lightroom, Juan's work has been featured in numerous publications, including Sierra Magazine, Nature Conservancy, Audubon Magazine, American Photo, Audubon, North Carolina, Wildlife in North Carolina, The Independent, and many others. He hopes that his images, which he often donates to nature and wildlife nonprofits, will inspire others to appreciate and respect nature. 
Juan sells his work directly to private individuals and has been the founder of numerous popular photography podcasts and most recently a new YouTube channel. And so without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Juan Pons. Juan, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show today. Oh, thank you, Brenda, for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, me too. Thank you. Um, you're one of our few and far between wildlife photographers that we've had on the show so far. So I'm hoping we can talk a bit about that. But before we dive in, you know, I've already given the listeners your bio in the introduction. And you've obviously been doing this for a while now. So I'm curious, what were some of the early influences in your journey into photography? You know, did you always want to be a photographer? Or how did that all begin for you? Yeah, it's kind of funny, because I have probably, you know, the one of the best stories, if you will. Um, I was, uh, I really got into photography in high school, because I had an incredible photography teacher. My high school was fortunate enough that my my high school had a photography program. And really early on, you know, first year I was there, uh, I was there only for two years, the last two years of high school, I immediately gravitated towards that and became good friends with the photography teacher. And, um, you know, this was a long time ago. This was in the mid-80s. And I've stayed in touch with her. And wow. we've actually conversed. She actually uses me as part of her teaching program at, nice. the, at the school. And um, uh, she just retired this past year. I was at a party for her retirement. Wow. And a lot of, you know, the, her students that uh, kind of became professional photographers, oh, a lot of us were there, you know, to kind of bid her farewell and thanking her mm-hmm. for being such an inspiration. Um, you know, it, and yeah, it was kind of funny because I didn't quite realize that when I took her class, she was very green. Um, it was only like her sec- first or second year teaching photography. Wow. Uh, yet, you know, she was so good that the foundation that she set for me has lasted me throughout all this time. It's really the only formal training that I had in photography, but she was so wow. good in teaching us and instilling us the fundamentals and allow us to experiment. That was one of the coolest things about the class is that we experimented with everything. You know, this was back in obviously in the film days, mm-hmm. but we experimented with all sorts of different cameras, all sorts of different films, all sorts of techniques. Um, and I still have, and I showed her to her, I still have my notebook from that class with all wow. of my contact sheet and her comments on the back with all, it was, it was pretty cool. So wow, I, I feel amazing. I'm really fortunate that I did have that uh, very strong foundation early on. And it's really what kind of, you know, instilled the love of photography for me. And even though I drifted a little bit when I was in college, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was, a, I was an engineer in computer science, you know, I still you know, was a photographer. I worked as a photographer when I was in college. I worked as okay. a school photographer. So photography has yeah. always been, it's been with me. The, the journey into wildlife is a little different. That didn't happen until later, but, uh, but always have had, you know, always enjoyed photography. Yeah. That's so wonderful. And it's so great that you have continued yeah. that, that relationship, that friendship with her yeah. uh, throughout your whole career. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for many years we didn't connect, but then I don't, you know, I guess social media does this, right. It connects people that, um, that uh, you, 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 you thought you would never connect with again. And we connected that way. And probably for the past 10 years, we've been in touch on and off and, you know, we send each other emails or contacted. So it, it, it's been really, really cool. 
That's great. That's great. So how did, when did uh, wildlife enter the picture for you? Um, you know, I've always been really interested in wildlife, um, but, you know, not from a photography perspective. I've always been interested in, in, in the natural world, always been an outdoor person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was I, – after college, I was living and working in uh, Massachusetts. Then I decided yeah, I was getting sick of the winters up here and mm-hmm. moved down to North Carolina. And when I moved to North, to North Carolina, um, I was fortunate enough to buy a property – that was five acres in the woods with lots of forest around me, lots and lots of wildlife. And I took the opportunity then to say, you know, to, to, I wanted to get to know the wildlife a lot more. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I just like sat there and that's all I did, you know, you know, my attention span, it wasn't long enough for me to sit there and, and, and just look at the wildlife. So I needed something to really get me to pay attention to the wildlife. And, you know, what else? Photography just did it. That's really mm-hmm. what brought me into wildlife photography was the desire of getting to know the wildlife around me a lot more. Um, so in a lot of ways, photography was a means to an end. Photography was really a means to uh, get to know the wildlife a lot more, be more immersed in the, in the wildlife and in the outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over time, they just kind of became one and the same. Right. So it was a way of observing and learning and, yes. and uh, yeah, yeah. With a you purpose. Focused. You know, if I, if, I, yeah. if I had to, you know, just study the animals, just to study them, you know, I, I, I knew my interest would probably wane. But if I was doing it with a purpose of trying to capture better images of my subjects and knowing, you know, as much as I could about the subjects to make those images, right. I knew that that would stick. And, yeah. and it did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. I love that. Uh, that was a way of you to, to spend mm-hmm. more time out in nature and, and yeah. the camera was your avenue for that. Um, yeah, I mean, so and, I, and, you know, it led me to do all sorts of crazy things. You know, I, I just, you know, some people say you don't have the patience to sit in a blind for eight hours. And I did. Yeah, I would sit in a blind for eight hours in North Carolina, 90 degree, 85 percent humidity weather, you know, sweating. <laughs> like, you know, you, But, you know, I was uh, photographing some fox kits or whatever. And you yeah. know, because, you know, I wanted to learn more about them and, and make great images. I even for a while I was raising um, Luna moths. I raised oh, one wow. year almost like 600 luna moths in one one summer you know i did all sorts of crazy things kind of in the in the in the in the pursuit of great, making great images of these subjects that i that i really enjoyed and, and really loved yeah yeah that's so great so w- w- to make a luna moth i mean we did that with uh the monarchs this year do you just go out and look for the the caterpillars and yeah and- so, you know, this was when I was in North Carolina. We had quite a few luna moths around us. And, you know, basically in the spring, you leave a light on. And chances are that, you know, in one week, you may get one or two in the morning kind of by the light that was outside. Um, and, you know, I would, you know, you, I learned to distinguish the males from the females and, you know, would capture the females um, and then put them in a uh, screen box with um, with vegetation, luna moths don't eat. They have no no functioning mouth parts. They oh. only eat as caterpillars. I see. Um, but I put them in there so that the, the they would lay the eggs on on the on the um, uh, branches of trees that they would normally eat. And in North Carolina, their preferred uh, uh, a tree that they would eat is the tulip poplar. So okay. and then. You know, once they laid the eggs, you know, I would release them and I did that for a few of them. And then, you know, the eggs would hatch and I would have to change the leaves as they ate them or whatnot. And initially, I would have to change the leaves once a week. But when they were getting big and I would have like, 
in one of the cages that I had, if I had like 30 or 40 caterpillars in there, I was having to change that stuff sometimes two or three times a day because, you know, they can be really big. I'd be like five inches long and, and pretty thick and they eat a lot. So, wow. Um, yeah. So it was almost a full-time job rearing all <laughs> <Yes>. these Luna moths. <laughs> but it was cool because I got to release them and I got great pictures of my, my son with uh, with all sorts of Luna moths all over him. And, wow. Um, yeah. And I got some incredible images of Luna moths and, you know, it was just something fun to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so neat to have those um, uh, moments of connection with the natural world, you know, whether it's Absolutely. the fox kit from eight hours in a blind or the Luna moth in a container, there's something awe-inspiring about that moment of, oh, there they are. Ooh, they, what well, are they you, know, and, you know, and you know what, it's such a, it's such a, a visceral moment that you remember it, you know, yeah. for, for your entire life. I mean, I, 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 is, is, I mean, like you said, it's something you just remember and it's ingrained in you. Um, and, you know, for, for my, for my son, it was also a great thing because, you know, it also instilled that wonder of the natural world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, shifting gears just a little bit, I understand you conduct a lot of photography workshops yeah, and, yeah. uh, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, one of our subscribers to the outdoor photography school newsletter, her name is Arlene Courtney, oh, yeah. uh, was one of your clients at your winter in Yellowstone workshop. And a few months back, she had recommended you as one of our monthly highlighted photographers. We, we always cool. feature one per month. So for listeners who haven't worked with you yet, could you tell us a little bit about how your workshops are structured and what can participants expect and what is your approach or style to teaching? Um, well, you know, uh, I'll start with the last the last one and then we'll go a little bit into the nitty-gritty and logistics of it. Um, you know, I, I believe in teaching by doing because that's the way that I learn best. Mm -hmm. You know, theory mm -hmm. is one thing and theory is great. But the only way for me, at least, and for a lot of people to learn is really by doing and reinforcing that learning you may have done by reading or classroom sessions or whatnot. And, you know, and to that end, you know, what I run is what I call photographic workshops as opposed to photo tours. And there, to me, there's a big difference between the two. A tour is some, you know, a, a uh, an event where someone takes you to a you know, beautiful location or an iconic location or whatnot. And they're like, here it is. And you're kind of on your own to take images. There's not a lot of hands-on instruction. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not what I do. What I do is very hands-on instruction. Um, you know, when we're at a particular location, we do a lot of infield instruction, help people with their settings, help people with composition, help with their camera, you know, anything that they need when they're out there. And we also then reinforce that with um, in classroom sessions, sometimes after the fact yeah, in the evenings or even after the workshops, we may do image reviews, image critiques, mm -hmm. as well as help people editing the images and teach them anything that they need from, from that perspective. Um, the workshops, most of the workshops that I've run are all inclusive, meaning that um, all you need to do is get yourself to that particular location, to that airport, Mm -hmm. And from there on, everything is included, new meals, lodging, transportation, guides, everything. You don't really have to pay any, even, even gratuities are included. Mm -hmm. um, and I do that because I think that, you know, people then can focus really on the photography. You don't have to really think about, you know, all the nitty gritty logistics. Stuff. That's what I do. That's what we do is set all that up. Yeah. Um, but because everything is so inclusive, oftentimes people look at the prices of my workshops and they're like, they're pricey because, you know, it's just one 
one-stop, you know, payment, if you will. Um, So, you know, people need to look, I think, a little bit uh, uh, deeper to realize, yeah, they may be more expensive, but this is it. You don't have to, you know, besides your plane ticket to get there, there's no other charges that you need to to do. But in addition to that, I do run some... um, uh, I want to say lower or easier entry level. I want to say entry level, but they're you know less expensive trips that are maybe smaller, shorter, um, mm-hmm. that uh, are more accessible to a lot more people. And that uh, works in two different ways: is that it kind of gives people an introduction to how I do things and how we run workshops and the quality of what we what we offer. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, not everybody can afford the you know. 10, eight to 10 day trips that are nor- the norm with right. me because they just tend to be kind of expensive. Right. Um, so, for example, you know, uh, we run workshops out in um, uh, in Acadia for in that are just three three days that are you know even though everything is included in those typically they're still much more affordable because they're shorter and they're in locations that are not necessarily as expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes sense. We're running a new one next year. I, well, it's not a new one. It's a trip that I used to do for many, many years. I did it for about nine years, and I haven't done them in a few years. And we're uh, about to announce some new trips for 22, which are going to be waterfalls of uh, North Carolina oh, and nice. Pennsylvania. And those, mm-hmm. again, you know, three to four-day trips that are much more affordable um, that people can go to. So there's kind of, you know, both um, the kind of – all-inclusive, longer workshops that could be either in the U.S., like my winter in Yellowstone workshops, mm-hmm. um, or it could be, you know, as far-flung as Antarctica, um, where we are, are out in Antarctica. You know, that workshop is 24 days long Whoa. Um, because you're in a ship for a lot of that time. We go to South George Island and then to the Antarctic Peninsula, so that, that takes a long time. Wow. You know, plus Costa Rica, you know, Galapagos, Ecuador, Cuba, a lot of different places around the world. But we do a bunch of stuff in in the U.S. as well, and a lot of stuff in Alaska as well for polar bears or for whales and uh, uh, and bears as well, uh, grizzly bears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, with the amount of workshops as you, that you run, I mean, how much time do you actually spend at home in a year <laughs> with all that travel? And how do you, I'm, I am a, I love going places to learn about new, new locations and I'm terrible at traveling. Like I, my system always needs a recovery period right. after the fact. <laughs> so how do you, how do you handle that? You know, just physically, do you have like a yeah. self-care routine that you have for making sure you're um, switching time zones well and that yeah. sort of thing? Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of funny because, uh, um, I don't, my body doesn't switch time zones all that well if it's two hours or less. So typically, I, you know, if it's longer than two hours, I do well. My body can switch. But if it's two hours, like for example, the ones I do to Costa Rica, those tip, depending on uh, that, you know, whether you have daylight savings or not, it's either two hours or one hour. When it's two hours, it actually really sucks because I'm waking up at three in the morning <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because, you know, if my body just never adjusts, you know, to that two hour change. If it's like West Coast, three hours, my body takes a few days and I'm, and I'm there already. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've been doing this for this uh, almost 20 years now. Um, wow. So I think my body has just gotten used to the abuse. Um, yeah. and, you know, and, and it's funny because, you know, I would say probably what six years ago I was doing a lot of lot of trips. I was out on the road almost two hundred days a year. Oh, um, 
And then I was hoping with 20, you know, 2020, 2021 for things to slow down. Uh, and I'm going to, was going to start doing less trips and obviously 2020 <laughs> that was forced on me. <laughs> Be careful um, what you wish for. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, that was a little bit too extreme. Um, yeah. But now, because there's so much pent-up demand, everybody has cabin fever. You know, 21 and 22 have been just absolutely crazy. 22 and 23, my schedule's, you know, pretty much sold out. I'm trying to add new things for 22 just so that people have opportunity to sign up for something because I'm getting a lot of complaints that people go to my website. They're like, everything you have is sold out. You know, what can I do? You know, so. Yeah. Um, so I think at least for the next few years, while this pent up demand is there, you know, my travel is going to be a little crazy. I know 22 is just absolutely, uh, it's nuts. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was looking at your schedule and I was like, wow, I, when is he actually home? <laughs> yeah. And I, and, you know, and I have, you know, what, uh, two Costa Rica workshops that I'm adding for 22 and the waterfall workshops that I'm adding for 20. So four more workshops can wow. be added for 22. Wow. That's you know? amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how I'm going to survive this 22. We'll see. Right. To get a lot of sleep next month, at, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're recording this all just so the listeners know we're recording this uh, right before Thanksgiving, but it's going to air in January. And so in January, you know, we'll be now in the, in the dead of winter in the mm-hmm. heart of winter. And I understand, you know, one of your most popular workshops is the Yellowstone in winter workshop. And so what are some of the benefits of photographing wildlife in winter? Well, you know, the, to Yellowstone in the winter is probably my favorite place in the world. Um, you know, and I've been running that workshop. This will be my 17th year in a row that I've done winter in Yellowstone. Wow. Um, and it's just become more and more popular to the point that this year I'm doing three trips in January. So I'm there basically the entire month of January. Um, and same thing for 23. In, in, in what I love about Yellowstone in the winter, I mean, I love Yellowstone any time of the year, but winter to me is really special because, um, you know, if you've ever been to Yellowstone, you know that Yellowstone is huge. It's a humongous park. And the wildlife, you know, even though there's plenty of wildlife in the rest of the year, in the summer months, um, you know, spring, summer, or fall, the wildlife you know, it's hard to spot because they may be further away. They they blend it really well with the background, except for the bison. You can see the bison a mile away. Um, but everything else is kind of hard to spot. So you have to work a lot harder. In the winter, you know, because everything is covered in snow and Yellowstone receives a huge amount of snow um, and it's actually very cold as well, the animals tend to be um, a little closer to the roads, if you will, or, you know, to the areas where they can walk a lot easier. You know, mm-hmm. if you're a bison, you'd rather walk on an area that is, you know, easier to walk on than trying to post hole through three feet of snow all day long, right? right? Yeah. So the wildlife tends to be a little bit more accessible. They're more visible for sure because, you know, they're they're standing against the, the white snow. Um, their coats are much more luxurious. So from the wolves to the coyotes to the foxes to the bison, everything, their coats is just so much more luxurious because they have a nice thick coat mm-hmm. for the winter. Um, and, you know, the animals need to eat a lot because they need to stay warm. You know, they they don't have the luxury that we do going into a nice warm vehicle or into a hotel. Right. Um, they need to be out hunting and feeding all the time. So they are a lot more active. So you get to see a lot more interaction with the animals. Um, you get to see them, you know, more action as they're out and about feeding and, you know, sometimes even defending uh, their territory or even preparing themselves 
um, for the mating season to come in the spring mm-hmm. by by mock fighting with some of their siblings and things of that nature. So, mm, so to me, winter is a lot more productive from a wildlife perspective. But it's it's an absolute win, you know uh, uh, a winter wonderland. I mean, it, to use a pun, so to speak, or, right. or yeah. a cliche, it is absolutely spectacular. The amount of snow and the cold just makes the landscape just seem so much more beautiful. You get a lot of steam that accumulates on the trees, on the vegetation. So you get the trees that are completely covered in hoarfrost. Mm-hmm. Um, you get you know fresh snow just about every other day or a few times a week at least. So wow. even though you may go to a particular location, you know, and you photograph it, you come back three days later. And it may look different because we had a snowfall. So now you have fresh snow on it. So you get a, a little different look to that particular location. Yeah. So the, the, the climate must be pretty interesting because it's sort of, it's yeah. a desert essentially, right? And so yes. it's very dry. So yes. very light, fluffy snow, but yet you have the hot springs bringing in moisture as well. So do you get more um, ice and, and um, you know, crunchy snow conditions around the hot springs or they pretty much stay melted out? Because well, of the temperature, it, it you know the, you're absolutely right. Yellowstone is super super dry. The, the average elevation in Yellowstone is about eight thousand feet, um, and it's also just a very dry location. One of the things that I talk about during the workshop, just to give you an idea, when we drive through some parts of the park, you can see the trees that were burnt and fell down from the fires of 1988. 1988, wow. right? You know, and you still see those trees today, and they look like they fell down three years ago, just because there's not that much of um, a breakdown that happens because it is so dry. To break down a tree, you need a lot of moisture, and there's not a lot of moisture in the air. So you're right. The snow tends to be very fluffy um, and, you know, beautiful, really, because, you know, it's not like, you know, you and I both live out in the east, and our snow here tends to be kind of wetter and clumpier. Over there, super fluffy, and it's like you know, almost like powder. So it's it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Now, in the in the thermals themselves, um, you'll be amazed how much because it's cold. The snow really creeps up almost to the edge of the thermals in most places, huh. and then you may have like a hot pot or a spring, and obviously there's no snow there, but the the snow may be coming up to right to the edge of that. And in some other places where you may have thermal activity very close to the ground. You may see big expanses of, 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 of ground that there is no snow at all. You may see some, you know, if there's a tree growing in that area, you may see the tree completely covered in snow, but the ground, there may be no snow. So it really depends on how close the thermal activity is to the surface. In the springs, the, the thermal activity tends to, be, tends to be a little deeper and then comes up through that spring mm-hmm. um, so that the area around the springs tends to, it tends to have quite a bit of, uh, of snow, except for places like the Old Faithful uh, Basin area, because that area, there's so much thermal activity that that whole area has very little snow on the ground itself. On the boardwalks around, and it's kind of funny because you may be walking on a boardwalk and if you walk there, you know the boardwalk is usually like maybe a foot or two above the ground. But mm-hmm. when you're walking there in the winter, you're walking four feet above the ground because there's <laughs> there's like two to three feet of snow on top of the boardwalk. <laughs> right. That's getting all packed down. It's <laughs> getting all and, packed down. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's what always cracks me up in the woods around here is that the last thing to melt in the spring is the trail, you know, and right. there's always this pack on the trail. And, right. 
Yeah. Um, so you, you guys nice packed in there. So, you know, the ice just takes a long time to melt compared to the snow. It does. It does. Yeah. So are you in snowshoes or skis or anything like that with your no, workshops? Um, so, you know, I, I've tried all sorts of different things in the years that I've done the workshops. And the, initially we did do some trekking in snowshoes, but, you know, I quickly found out that not everybody can snowshoe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was becoming an issue with some people or whatnot. So we typically, we are not, uh, we're not in snowshoes. We're not in skis. Um, when I go and I spend time on myself by myself, I do bring my snowshoes and I go out snowshoeing, mm-hmm. but for the workshop themselves, we're, you know, it, oftentimes, you know, close to the roads, um, you know, we may go off the road a little bit, but usually it's in areas that that's pretty well packed that where there's been quite a bit of travel. So mm-hmm. we don't necessarily need to be. We're not post holing. Sometimes mm-hmm. we do, but yeah. almost by you know, accident. That, yeah, or by accident, <laughs> or because we see something really cool and we need to get up close, and then yeah. I'll 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 break trail, and then people will follow me. You know, and I have yeah. to take breaks along the way because you know you know post holing is like. It's hard. <laughs> the the yeah. hardest thing ever. <laughs> yes. um, but no, typically we don't, you know, folks, it's it's actually, you know, the the most strenuous part of the of the trip is the fact that you may encounter very cold weather. Um, mm. But itself, the the walking and the 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 moving about is is actually, you know, not all that strenuous at all. Mm. Yeah. Just keeping warm. Right. Just keeping warm because, you know, like I tell people, the coldest I've ever been was in Yellowstone. It was forty-eight below zero. Wow! And that's Fahrenheit. Yeah, um, but you know, at cool. that level, it's almost the same because the, the 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 scales meet at thirty below Fahrenheit and Celsius. They meet at thirty below. Right. Um, but that's not usual. We have you know typically we'll probably see twenty below in the mornings when we go for some sunrise shoots, out in especially Lamar Valley. But mm-hmm. then during the day, we may see ten, twenty, thirty above. Wow. So once the sun That's comes out, range. yeah, it, it's actually pretty, pretty pleasant. But in the morning, yeah. it can be very, very cold. So you need to be, you know, I, I have a big document I send to people with, you know, all sorts of suggestions on how to dress appropriately. Because like you said, it's a big, big range. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're talking, Layers. there could be 60 degree difference between, right. you know, 30 <laughs> below to 30 plus. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so layers are key, I imagine. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I've had some people who didn't pay attention to my document and they showed up with, you know, one of those big, you know, uh, Arctic, you know, things for the Antarctic and they're like, you know, like five inches thick and, (laughs) you know, and then they wear like, you know, you know, something pretty light underneath because that thing is so warm. And then when it gets in the afternoon, it's 30 degrees, they're they're boiling inside this thing, but they're too cold when they open it. So it's kind of like, you gotta, (laughs) yeah, you gotta do layers. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So when you're when you're out doing some wildlife photography and you're looking for the animals, what are you doing to connect with the animal on a way, in a way so that you can tell the story about that animal? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a great question because you know the best thing, it, 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 what I tell you know my my clients is the best thing that you can do to make the best images of your subjects is to know your subjects, understand them. Because that's what that's going to give you a couple of different things. It's going to allow you to capture, you know, what makes a fox a fox. Let's say, for example, mm-hmm. uh, create something that's really unique for a red fox. Um, it will also help you uh, predict their their behavior. 
So, for example, if you know that foxes uh, like to mouse, and mouse is when they actually jump up in the air and they go down headfirst into the snow to pull out a mouse or a vault from the underneath the snow, mm-hmm. if you know that they do that, you can start looking for signs for when they're doing that and get ready to be able to capture that fox in mid-jump in the air coming down onto the snow. Mm-hmm. If you're not, I mean, that literally happens in a fraction of a second. So, if you're not, don't understand your subject, don't understand that behavior and what to look for when they're about to do it, you know, you're going to have a really hard time capturing. Yeah, you may get lucky, but, you know, when you're out there, you know, for, you know, eight days, you know, you can't rely on luck. You know, right. you, you gotta, you gotta get, be ready to, to, you know, help luck favor you. So to speak. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, understanding your subjects, because the other thing it's going to allow you to do is know what environments are going to be in. So, you Mm -hmm. know, for example, that uh, long tail weasels, which, you know, people love to photograph because they're they're like ermine, they're they're white on the snow and they're just really striking. Well, there are certain environments that they like to hang out in. You're not going to find them everywhere. You're not going to find them in some of the more open areas. You're going to find them in areas where, especially there's willow trees that they like, the willow bushes, uh, mm-hmm. not willow trees, willow bushes. So you're going to find them more in those areas or in specific areas of the park they like to congregate in. If you're looking for pikas, for example, you're going to be looking for them in town. So understand your subject, not just, you know, what they look like, but their behavior and their preferences and food sources. It's going to help you create better images, you know, be able to capture that unique behavior or the unique environment that that subject lives in. And uh, sometimes I think of wildlife photography and I I hesitate to ask the question because I don't want it to sound... (laughs) Uh, offensive to anyone, but in some ways, I feel like there are a lot of parallels to hunting. Um, whether Absolutely. you know people are pro or against hunting mm-hmm. as as a you know subsistence living or or sport, I think the 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 tracking, the observation, the patience, studying the animal, a lot of those activities are are similar between the two. Um, oh, the very. With, yeah, very much so. so. I mean, I've had many clients who were were former hunters or current hunters, and those are, you know, in a lot of ways for me the best clients because, you know, they are really good spotters. Right. You know, oftentimes they'll be better spotters than me because they're used to spotting wildlife. They know what to look for. They're very good with using binoculars, and they're very good with looking for signs of wildlife. So, absolutely, you know, I think that. Um, I mean, I've had many clients over the years and some that are repeat clients that are hunters. Um, and they, you know, and I want to say a lot of hunters, believe it or not, um, I'm not, not even sure what I'm saying, believe it or not, but a lot of hunters do have great respect for wildlife. Yes, um, yeah. And they appreciate, you know, the, the hardships that wildlife go through and, you know, they have a great respect um, for the wildlife, you know, so – so a lot of people, you know, have negative connotations for hunters, but I don't necessarily do because I, I've I've run into a lot of folks that and I've had a lot of clients that are that are hunters and they absolutely love the wildlife and a lot of folks work in conserving wildlife mm-hmm. as well. Right. Um, yeah. But they, you know, they tend to be, you know, some of the best spotters that are out there because they're used to doing that. And hunting is much more difficult than photography because you got to be in the right spot at the right time. Most of these hunters. When, when they're hunting, they want to make sure that the animal doesn't suffer 
which right. means that they have to be, you know, in a, a clear shot in a good location for, you know, for putting down the animal, which, you know, for us as photographers, we can be much further out. We don't necessarily need to be in a, in a great location. And what we be looking for may be different than what they're looking for. We may be looking for the animals to be more hidden in their environment to create a better mm -hmm. image. Right. Um, so, you know, absolutely. I think, I think that, um, uh, uh, some of the hunt, some of the best spotters that have had along with me on workshops, which makes my job a little easier, have been hunters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I think there's a lot that we can learn from them in 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 applying it to to our approach yes, to photography. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So, what are some compositional techniques for um, photographing wildlife that is beyond sort of the general portraiture technique of like you know focus on the nearest eye and that sort of thing? Like, what are some other things that you teach about? negative space or positioning or depth of field that can really capture the character of an animal. So, you know, it, it's kind of funny. I, last night, uh, I think I was telling you earlier, I was judging a, a wildlife competition um, remotely. And, you know, looking at that, you can very clearly, easily tell the folks who've had a lot of experience shooting wildlife and those that don't, because there, there are a lot of themes that um, come up over and over again that people need to work on and don't necessarily understand. And that's mm -hmm. what the judging is, is all about, is to help people create better images. Um, so, you know, in, in if people are getting into, or the biggest misconception, I think, that people getting into wildlife have is that they need to use a very small aperture with their lenses in order to capture the wild, wildlife. And usually it's exactly the opposite. We want a really wide aperture, especially when we're using long lenses. And the reason is because we're shooting at quite a bit of a distance from our animals. So, you know, depth of field grows with distance, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, it uh, shrinks with focal length. So the longer the lens the smaller the depth of field. But the further you are away, the deeper the depth of field. So most of the time when we're shooting with long lenses, you know, it could be a zoom lens or a prime lens at 500, 600, 400 millimeters, and we're shooting an animal, say even a bison, for example, that may be, you know, 50 yards away, you know, even if you're shooting at f5.6, you'll still have plenty of depth of field to capture the essence of that animal. Um, yes, if you were shooting the animal kind of head on, there may not be enough depth of field to have the eyes as well as the tail in focus. But mm -hmm. if you're shooting them head on, you, you know, you, you want that, that, that depth of field to fall off to give you a sense of depth. If you didn't have any depth of field, the image would look flat. So right. always be looking for, you know, how can you also stand your animal or your subject out from the background? And one of the best ways to do that is going to be by blurring that background out. And again, this is when that wide aperture is going to help because it's going to allow you to blur that background out, uh, blur that background out and make that subject stand out from the background mm -hmm. and really enhance, you know, kind of bring it out, make it pop out of the, of the image. Um, even in the situations where they may be around some, um, um, uh, some some environment, some trees or some foliage, you still want as as shallow depth of field to keep that background from um, uh, from encroaching on your subject and making the image image seems flat. Um, now, the other thing that I talk about a lot is the pose of the animal. Yes, we always want to capture motion. 
as much mm-hmm. as we can, right? The portrait is great, but if you capture some motion, it gives you a little bit of intent. It gives you, it allows you to create a little bit of a story of what the animal may have been doing, what the subject may may be about to do, or or what was doing. Mm-hmm. But just as important as capturing um, uh, uh, action is the pose and your perspective onto your subject. And and I mean two things by that. One is, you know, what angle are you shooting at your subject? Are you shooting head on? Are you shooting, you know, a 90 degree perpendicular to them? Um, And my answer is you want to be somewhere in between, usually about 45 degrees. That's the optimal angle that I'm always looking to photograph my subjects in because it's going to give you a better sense of your subject in its entirety. Now, there's other situations where you may not want that. For example, if you have a pronghorn leaping over a fence or over some rocks, you may want to be shooting completely perpendicular at them to to capture that. But in most cases, shooting at that 45-degree angle is going to give you a better perspective, a better look at your entire subject. Um, And then the other thing that I talk to people all the time, because I see this happening, and I see this happening both in wildlife situations as well as landscape situations, you know, a lot of folks will get to a particular location, find their spot, and like, you know, like grow roots in that mm-hmm. one spot and not move around and not try to create something that's a little different. And you'll see people sitting there and just shooting the same shot over and over again. Yeah, the light may be changing, but you have the same perspective. Mm-hmm. Um Especially for wildlife, we cannot direct the wildlife to do what we want them to do. We can't tell them, oh, you need to move to the left a little bit, a little bit to the right, right like you can with people. <laughs> so you have to do that. Um, so I'm always paying attention, not just to my subject, but the background as well, and the relationship between my subject and the background. Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes by just moving a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, or a little bit higher, a little bit lower, or maybe sometimes quite a bit to the left – is going to change that relationship between your subject and the background. It's also going to change the angle at which you're shooting your subject. Um, so always be looking to move around to compose the image. It's not about just standing there and taking a snapshot, but it's at working at creating that image. Yeah, when you first encounter a, a wildlife, you want to take a shot no matter what because that may be the only shot you get. That's what I call my safe shot. I want to capture that safe shot. And then I'll work in composing and creating a better image based on the subject and its environment um, and the background. But yeah, and then the other thing, like you mentioned, is, you know, kind of the the number one rule. And this is like, you know, we have all these rules in photography, right, that uh, we break them as often as we follow them. Mm-hmm. But the one rule that we don't break um, or very, 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 very rarely break is making sure the eyes are in focus. Mm-hmm. Having yeah. that connection with your subject is going to allow that viewer of your image establish a connection with the subject. If you don't have that connection, that eye contact, or being able to see the eye of the subject, you know, we just don't, you know, we don't, we don't feel invested in the image. Mm-hmm. We don't make that connection with our subject and we just don't, you know, it doesn't appeal to us as much. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, that's how we connect with each other and right. our pets and, you know, it, it, the eyes are yes. have such significance in that way. Yeah, even, you know, the one thing that you know, always comes up um, is, you know, butt shots, right? I, one, <laughs> of the, one of the things I say on the trips is no butt shots allowed. Um, <laughs> yeah. When an animal is walking away from you, it's time to put the camera down. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the only exception to that 
is if the animal is, you know, if it's a butt shot, but they're doing the over the shoulder look where they're looking back right. at you. So you can still see the eye. There's lots of animals, you know, especially birds, but many other mammals as well. They have kind of interesting rumps or interesting patterns or colors on their back. Mm -hmm. So getting that back shot can be interesting, but only if you have that connection with the eye. So yeah. if you don't have that connection with the eye, I, you know, it, I just don't think it it's works just on a that butt well. Shot. It's just a butt shot. Exactly. It's just a butt <laughs> shot. And, you know, we've all gotten them. I have tons of butt shots, you know, because sometimes we get so excited at the moment that we just keep right, shooting. Right. You're going to yeah. be like, okay, why am I keeping shooting? Why am I shooting this butt? There's no reason to do that. <laughs> I actually have a, a photo of, I think it's about four or five cows in a row, and it's just a row of butts. And yeah. I often use it in the end of a presentation, and I just say, the end. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and in situations like that, that could be useful, um, right. for sure. <laughs> so you're talking about, you know, trying to get the right composition. And so the photographer would be moving around. Are you mostly suggesting people handhold or are tripods uh, recommended or, you know, what's what's better in those situations? And well, then I have a follow-up question to the moving around. Yeah. So, um, you know, that that's a, another great question because I think things have shifted. You know, for the longest time, for, you know, uh, almost two decades, I was shooting with big honking 500 millimeter F4 lenses that are insanely heavy that you had to have a tripod on because they were really hard to handhold. We were shooting with very low ISOs because, frankly, the ISO performance of digital cameras wasn't all that great. Um, so yeah, we, you know, I used to, I used to, I mean, my, my right arm is still screwed up from having to carry all that, all that gear. And yeah. you would have this big tripod with a big gimbal on it, this big head, and you would have to lift it up and move it around a lot. And it was, you know, big pain in the butt, made you slow, made you miss a lot of shots because, you know, you were dealing with this big rig. Yeah. Nowadays, you know, I hardly ever am shooting from a tripod for wildlife. I'm finding that I can do way better handheld because mm -hmm. I am more, what I like to say, light, quick, and nimble, mm -hmm. meaning I can very quickly turn around and make a shot. If I'm in a vehicle, I can quickly get out of the vehicle and take a shot, even without having to go to the back, get the tripod, set it up. If you have to get to the back of the vehicle, bring your tripod out, you know, set up the head on it, put your, tri your, your camera on it, level it, and then shoot. By that time, things may have gone, may have gone away. Sure. Um, yeah. And today we have some amazing uh, tele, super telephoto zoom lenses from just about every manufacturer that are just so incredibly good and so sharp. Yeah, the, the, the prime still edged them out mm -hmm. to a certain extent, especially with, you know, in, in both um, uh, uh, sharpness, but also because of the wide aperture. So you'd be able to shoot at f5, f4, f5.6 to get those even blurrier backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, but I will take the disadvantage, the, the, the loss of one stop of aperture. Um, I'll gladly trade that for having the versatility of not having to set up a tripod and being able to handhold that my lens for a lot longer. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, the, perform the ISO performance on cameras nowadays is so incredibly good that uh, I don't hesitate to punch up that ISL you know, mm -hmm. pretty high to get the shots that I need to. And even if I go to super high ISOs, 
you can use tools like, you know, um, Topaz Denoise. That is just like, as far as I'm concerned, it's like black magic as far <laughs> yes. as clearing up images. Uh, I mean, I'm serious. I'm shooting, you know, especially when in my Costa Rica trips, we shoot under the jungle canopy and it's super dark in there, even if you have full sun. Yeah, You're shooting point. at ISO 12,800. Wow. Um, and yeah, you know, the cameras nowadays, you, you see some grain with those, nowhere near what you used to do, what we used to see five, six years ago. But even then, those images, I'll run in through Topaz Denoise, and it looks like they were shot at ISO 100 or 400. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it's incredible. So yeah, and now most of the time, I'm now shooting handheld, which makes it a lot easier to get back to what you were saying, move around. Mm-hmm. When you were having to move a big tripod with a with a lens on and stuff like that, that was always much more difficult. But nowadays, I'm always encouraging people to go for the more lightweight gear because I truly believe at the end of the day, you're going to end up with much, you know more keepers, more images, because you'll be a lot quicker off the get-go to, to make those images. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So briefly on settings, then are you, um, if you're doing mostly hand-holding, are you doing like a shutter priority mode where you're keeping the shutter speed quite fast or an auto ISO or... Uh, what's your preference for that? So yeah, I'm all, I'm almost always shooting auto ISO, you know, and I in the camera I can set the threshold, you know, mm-hmm. to the low end to the high end, and usually mine is set to 100, obviously, to up to 12,800, um, mm-hmm. and just let the camera pick that up. Now, whether I shoot in shutter priority or aperture priority or manual depends on the situation. I want to say that um, the vast majority of the time I'm shooting in aperture priority. And the reason for that is because I want that wide aperture, right? When I'm shooting with a long lens. So I have, I'm shooting aperture priority, have the aperture set to, um, you know, my lens on the long end. I used to, I use, I shoot Sony. I'm shooting with a Sony 200, 600 on at 600. The maximum aperture is 7.1. No, mm-hmm. 6.3. Sorry, 6.3. So I set the aperture 6.3. And what that does, it's giving me as much shutter speed as I possibly can under those conditions, right? And in modern cameras, when you're shooting in aperture priority and you're set up in auto ISO, the camera knows to follow the one over rule. Mm-hmm. And for those of you that may not know what the one over rule is, one over rule means that if you're shooting uh, at, let's say, um, 500 millimeters, you want to be shooting at least one five hundredth of a second in order to get a sharp image while you're handholding. Mm-hmm. So... The camera will follow the one over rule even when you're zooming in or out. So you know that you're at least going to get an image that's sharp when you're hand-holding. Um, you can also tweak the settings to go even above that or below that. In situations, but, but so even in those situations in which yeah, I'm shooting an aperture priority with my aperture wide open, I'm keeping an eye on that shutter speed, right? Because if all of a sudden an animal is moving very fast, I need to make sure that my shutter speed goes up in order to capture that motion. Right. So in situations where, uh, like, for example, in Costa Rica, we have a lot more animals that move more quickly than we do, like, in Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Costa Rica, most of the time I'm shooting in manual mode. And the reason is, so kind of very, very similar settings. I have auto ISO, um, have my aperture wide open, mm-hmm. but then I can adjust my shutter speed very quickly based on the animal that I'm photographing. Yeah. So if it's a sloth, for example, 
I can just go down <laughs> to one five hundredth of a second. I'm okay with right. that, right? right? But then, if all, if all of a sudden I have a um, a spider monkey that's jumping from tree to tree, and I want to capture that, I can just very quickly move my shutter speed up to two thousandths of a second and capture that, and let the camera adjust my ISO accordingly. Yeah, that makes sense. So it really depends on those situations, but those are the two ways that I shoot. You know, ninety nine percent of the time. Mm-hmm. And then are you using continuous autofocus? Yes, always. Yeah, I almost never go into into one shot because I don't do as much wildlife, I mean, landscape as I used to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing back button focus on my camera anyways. I've been doing back button focus you know, since forever. Yeah. Um, so even if I'm shooting landscapes, I still leave it in continuous because I'll just, you know, press the button, you know, get focus and then don't press the button again and the camera doesn't change the focus. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. As yeah. far as I'm concerned, my camera doesn't need to have one shot focus. <laughs> yeah. 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 That makes sense. So with moving around and in a group workshop situation, what are you doing to make sure that you're not disturbing the wildlife? You know, do you, mm-hmm. do they sense your presence and do you know, you know, what are you looking for, for signs to know whether you're disturbing them or whether or not it's safe to approach or not approach? How do you how do you handle that? Well, yeah, that that's, that's great. That's a that's an excellent question, also, and not one that a lot of people ask because it is something that I consider often, you know, a lot when we're out shooting. So I only take groups to places where I know the animals are accustomed to people. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's you know, my groups are small anyways. You know, my workshops typically are about eight people maximum. Mm-hmm. Um, so. But even in those situations, I only take groups like that in places where I know the animals are accustomed to seeing people and I know they're not going to get stressed. We always keep distance from our animals while we respect them. To me, you know, one of the things I like to say is that no shot is worth, you know, harming or imperiling an animal. Um, no image that I will make, you know, I will never make an image that's going to imperil an animal. For me, their welfare is more important than any image I will ever make. Um, So we're always trying to keep our distance, always looking for signs of stress. Because even though, you know, every animal is an individual, some may tolerate people getting closer and some Mm -hmm. may not. So even though when we're getting close to an animal, you know, close to where, you know, either following the rules of a national park or following my rules as to how how close we can get, I'm still monitoring the animals to see a change in behavior if they're Stop doing what they were doing as you're approaching. And those are all signs that you're just getting a little too close. So mm-hmm. even though you think you may know, you know, all bisons and you can get within a certain distance of bison, you know, they're all individuals. Some may be more sensitive to a group approaching them. Some may not be. Um, and also, obviously, you know, the, the, the safety of my group is super important as well. So we right. want to make sure we don't get too close. But I'm always, always monitoring for any change in behavior. One of the things you can do with a lot of animals, you can tell their intent on how they're feeling by looking at the ears. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that the ears are pointing or the way that they're drooping their ears or, you know, the, it tells you a huge amount of what they're paying attention to and what they're concerned. You know, people think in most cases that you can get close to animals and they don't notice you because they didn't look towards you. And I can tell you that that is very seldom the case. Animals right. are way more perceptive than we give them credit for. They know you're there. Yeah. They may not care you're there, but right. they know you're there. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, their senses are much stronger than ours yes, absolutely. in that way. And so they often will know our presence before we know their presence. And yes. yeah. I mean, so. it's a life or death thing for them. So. Right, right. Yeah. So are you guys in camouflage or do you ever work from a blind or are you just sort of looking, wandering and looking and, and observing and, and it's like a hurry up and wait situation or. It, it depends, you know, you know, it really depends on the situation. Um, you know, for the workshops themselves, you know, I used to do workshops where we would sit in blinds and shoot birds that, uh, for, especially for birds that would come, you know, raptors and whatnot that would come to perches and, and things like that. But I don't do those as much anymore. Most of the workshops that I'm doing are in locations where you, you don't need to wear camouflage. You can, but it's not really necessary. Um, mm -hmm. The animals are used to seeing people, and we're keeping distance enough away that that is that's usually not a problem. They don't get spooked by seeing a group of people. Um, yeah. You know, I used to, you know, on my own photography. Yeah, sometimes I'm in a blind, and um, but you know, I have found that doing that for groups. It's not something that I enjoy because what happens when you're in those situations, you have very limited ability to coach people and to tell people, you know, what to do and what to, you know, and help them when you're right. suggesting you need to be quiet and kind of not move very much. So the, the aspect of, of teaching and learning is much more reduced in those kinds of situations. So, um, yeah. so even though I do that on my own and sometimes I do it with a private client, it's not something that I do for my groups. You know, typically where I take the groups are places where it's um, we can be out in the open. We don't have to be kind of hiding. You know, mm -hmm. there are certain things that we do in order to minimize our presence to the animal. So oftentimes we may be behind a vehicle or we may get behind, you know, a rock or a tree to, you know, put less stress on the animals, if you will, or minimize our presence to the animals. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's more incidental. It's not something that we do, um, you know, all that often because we go to places where the animals are used to seeing people. Mm -hmm. And is that true for, um, I know you do a Katmai bears mm -hmm. workshop. So you've got the big brown bears up there as yes. well as the in Kaktovic with the polar bears. So are you going at a time of year when it, they're, they have a food abundance? And yes. so they're sort of just focused on the food and, and less on people. Yeah, Cause I, I don't mean, imagine they're that accustomed to people as much up there. Um, yes and no. So, um, uh, so yes, they, we go when there's an abundance of food. And like, I like to tell people, you know, salmon tastes a lot better than human. Mm -hmm. um, they don't, they don't, they're not interested in us. They're interested in the millions of salmon that are on the river. Um, yeah. So, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of bears, you know, they do get, especially grizzly bears, they do get ornery when they don't have food. And that's mm -hmm. when they tend to attack people, unless you, you know, unless you harass them and you get in between, you know, you're, you're, you're endangering their offspring or things of that nature. But in, you know, if you behave well around, around the bears, uh, especially the grizzlies, you know, um, and there's plenty of food, it's, it's not a problem. I've done workshops in many different places in the U.S. where we have been five, six feet away from grizzly bears oh, eating salmon. Um, you know, so much so that, you know, this, your sense of smell is overpowered by the smell <laughs> from the bears. Yeah. Um, but again, because they're in areas where there's so much food and, you know, a lot of, a lot of them are used to seeing people, um, even in Katmai, because we go to places that are, um, you know, they're not overrun with people by any stretch of the imagination, but people go pretty often. 
So a lot of the bears I've grown seeing uh, somewhat exposed to to people. Um, when we are, and, and that's mostly for the for the grizzly bears. We go in places where there are, um, you know, there's plenty of food around for them, so they're focused on that food. They're not focused on you. And we always maintain a very small presence. You know, for example, we never. Um, stand higher than they are. We never stand up when we're near them. We're always sitting down. We're always kind of more, you know, I don't want to say submissive, but, you know, less threatening. Let's put it that way. Um, And because we're also in groups, bears don't like to attack groups. So it's not like it's just me sitting there. If it was me sitting there, that would be a different story. I would be a a little more nervous. But if you have two or three, four or five people, um, you know, that um, it – you're a totally different uh, 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 thing to to the bears themselves, if you will. Mm-hmm. For for the polar bears, it's a little bit different. We like to go. So a lot of folks go to places like Churchill, where you're in this big buggy that um, you're kind of like yeah, 10, 12 feet up in the air, looking down at the bears, and you're, you're higher than the bears, and you're in this big metal coffin, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. or big metal vehicle. Um, the way that uh, the way what we do in Kaktovik is a little bit different. We're actually on boats on the water. Okay. So we stay the distance from the bears. The bears are typically on land on the ice while mm-hmm. we're on a boat. So yeah. they they can't come near us, and we yeah. are not intruding onto their um, in, into their environment, so to speak. Um, sometimes you know bears do get curious. Both you know I've had grizzly bears that got really curious. This this past summer when I was in Katmai, we had one big big um, sow that came up and she was kind of curious about one of my guys that was to the left of me. And as soon as it get close, you know it came to like three feet away, wow. and we just said that's close enough. And the bear backed off. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you understood English. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> um, they, they were just curious. And the same thing happens with polar bears. They may get curious and come towards us. They'll get in the water. And if they come in the water, we just you know, kind of motor away mm-hmm. so that we don't get anywhere near them. Yeah. Um, Are you in a little Zodiac boat? Yeah, we're, we're exactly. We're in like in, in kind of bigger Zodiacs, but yeah. Yeah, 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 little and little so, boats out in the water, so that it, which is great because you're kind of down at eye level to a lot of yeah. these bears. Gives yeah, that a is nice. Different perspective uh, versus some of the other places that you can go to that you're kind of shooting down at them. Right. Yeah. Totally different perspective and feel to the images. Yeah. You can shoot at eye level. Yeah. Or even up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So are you carrying bear spray and, and things course. like that? Yeah. 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 Some of the places always carry bear spray. Um, never had to use it. Um, knocking on wood. Yeah. Um, some of the places that I've been to in the past, you know, where we have local guides, because yeah, you always have a local guide, someone that understands the bears in the specific area as well. Um, and some of the places that I've been, that I've done uh, trips to, we may have a local guy with a shotgun with mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. just as an emergency thing. You know, right. most of these guys you talk to, they've never had to fire it. And if they've had to fire it, they just fired it in the air to kind of scare the animal away more than anything. Yeah. Um, but in most of the most of the trips, just, you know, and, and you'll talk to any bear expert and bear biologist, they'll tell you that uh, uh, bear spray is more effective than bullets um, wow. because sometimes, you know, especially for a grizzly, you know, 
you need a really big gun to be able yeah. to stop them. And you, if you shoot them, you may actually enrage them and they may come at you a lot harder versus right. a well-placed uh, shot of uh, bear spray on their face will completely incapacitate them and make them run away. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like I said, well-placed, that's the tricky part. <laughs> right. <laughs> Make sure the nozzle's pointing away from you. <laughs> exactly. And the wind is not coming towards you. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. So what is one of your most memorable wildlife encounters that you've had? Um, you know, it, it's kind of funny because I get that question, you know, quite often in it. Um, and I've had so many, you know, memorable encounters. I, you know, I've been lucky enough that I've never had a scary encounter. I've never felt unsafe. And that part of it is because I'm always, I'm always in tune to what the animals are doing and, um, our impact on the animals. Um, but, um, you know, one, one, one experience that always keeps coming back to me. So one of my favorite animals to see and photograph are muskox. Because they're, they're, which are kind of like bison, but they're smaller and they look really prehistoric. Yeah, they do. They have this beautiful like, manes to them, and yeah, yeah, they're just so cool. Look, I just, I just love them, and I love the environments that you get to find them in. Um, so you, you know, one year I was out in uh, the outskirts of Nome in Alaska photographing muskox. You know, and I was so focused on this small herd of muskox, photographing them and whatnot. And I, I followed them for a couple of miles out into the tundra. Um, and then all of a sudden, I, you know, I stopped, which is something that I also do during the workshop. I encourage people to do this, kind of stop and smell the roses, so to speak. You know, mm -hmm. just stop what you're doing and look around you, look behind you, look to the side. And all of a sudden, I realized that I was in this incredibly pristine, beautiful environment with not a soul miles and miles around me um, wow. with, you know, not a tree in sight, covered in snow with this muskox over there, you know, and the, I put my camera down and I sat down and just like yeah. enjoyed the moment. Um, yeah. You know, and I've had a number of those, you know, uh, probably about, I would say at least a half a dozen of those over, over my career. Um, but that one to me, just because the landscape was so austere and so beautiful um, and I had these majestic, you know, animals in front of me that it just like, you know, made me sit down and just enjoy it and absorb it and yeah. not have that camera in front of me and trying to figure out the composition and the settings. I just wanted to enjoy the moment. Um, yeah. It was like so. a gift. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what it is. And, you know, I, I've had many workshops where people, you know, we may have this incredible uh, phenomenon up in the sky with some beautiful clouds and some color and stuff like that. And people are like kind of frantic trying to shoot it and photograph it. And, and I look at it, I'm like, you know, no image is going to do justice to this. And I tell, I tell people, hey, guys, why don't you put your cameras down for a minute yeah. and just watch and enjoy it. You know, enjoy yeah. the silence. Look at where you're, you know, be thankful for where you are today, you know, and right. just absorb it. You know, because to me, it, images are great, but experiences are better. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's often that's what gets us to do photography. That's what right. gets us into photography is having yes. had those experiences. And so let's not forget that. Yeah. You and know? you remember those experiences because, they're, I mean, they're, they're just like they're, they're visceral, you know what I'm saying? Versus an image, yeah. you know, it's an image. You look at it, you look at it on your computer, on your phone every so often, you share it with people, you may print it, have it on a wall. But, you know, an experience you always carry with you. So you always remember and you always have that feeling. You know, as I think about that moment, I still, you know, my my the hairs on my arms are standing up a little bit. 
getting goosebumps all over myself just thinking of that uh, moment that I spent out in the in that tundra with the muskox. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So uh, I understand that conservation is is very important to you. And so, what role has photography played in in conservation efforts that you've had? Well, you know, um, I used to I used to be a lot more involved in conservation than I am nowadays because I've been so busy. But I used to, especially when I lived in North Carolina. Um, I was very involved with a number of conservation organizations, and I did a lot of volunteer work for them. Even to this day, you know, any conservation organization that contacts me to use of my images, they have free use of my images. And I just ask them what they're looking for to use, and they can use my images for their publications, for marketing, for fundraising, whatever. Um, but I was very involved when I was in North Carolina with the Audubon Society and the National Wildlife Federation uh, a lot of it through my photography, I helped them um, conserve some new areas and protect some areas that were under threat by some developments or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still do a little bit of that. I just don't do as much as I want to because, like we talked about earlier, things are just so incredibly busy nowadays. Yeah. Um, yeah. I still you know, find a little bit of time to volunteer. Lately, what I've been volunteering with is um, organization. I live now in Maine, and mm-hmm. one of the organizations that I've been volunteering with uh, is called the Maine Island Trail Association. So there are thousands of islands in Maine, on the coast of Maine. And the Maine Island Trail Association maintains campsites and trails on these islands, and they're open to the public. Um, And they have a big book. I have it somewhere around here. that uh, just shows you all the all the islands that you can go to and visit, which is just incredible, hundreds of islands. And I volunteer with them going out and monitoring the islands, you know, go out on a boat and monitor the islands and make sure that they're clean and there's no, no vandalism is taking place or anything like that. Um, so it's not necessarily photography related from that perspective, mm-hmm. but it's still something that I, that I, that I enjoy doing. Um, yeah. you know, the, the, my extent nowadays of the you know, photography to conservation has been mostly with, uh, providing, you know, conservation organizations with use of my images that I still get requests from time to time, um, uh, to do that. With the pandemic, you know, a lot of people found the outdoors. Some it was a new finding, and some it was a renewed finding, right. uh, an experience, which was great. But then we saw a lot of overuse and abuse of different areas and stuff. And so, what what ways do you think people could be uh, more responsible in their treatment of nature when they want to go out and recreate in it? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the funny thing is that there's so much out there. You know, even even. For us living, you know, you and I both live in kind of more rural states, so we have a lot of greenery around us. But even when I lived in Massachusetts or in North Carolina, I lived in pretty populated areas, and literally just a few minutes away from you, there were an innumerable number of natural resources that you could go, you know, trails, uh, state parks, local parks, and things of that nature. You know, one of the things that I was a little bit dismayed during the pandemic was that, you know, we, we love to go to Acadia and we live, no, we don't live far from Acadia. And we like to go, especially to the Scudic Peninsula, which is mm-hmm. kind of the, you know, an outlier to the main part of the park. And we usually try to go there in the spring and in the summer a few times because we enjoy it. It's nice and quiet and whatnot. And we went one time and it was just overrun with people like I've never seen before. This was in, wow. you know, during the pandemic in 2020. 
Yeah. Um, you know, and we immediately left and found another place. There are so many other places that you that you can find. I think a lot of us tend to congregate and go to those iconic places that everybody wants to go and see, and that's great. But there's so many other places that just by spending a little bit of time and researching that you can visit, and they'll some of them will be just as spectacular, if not more spectacular than right. some of these more iconic places. You know, in Maine, there's a um, an area in the bold coast of Maine, which is north of Acadia, that is just the coast is just absolutely stunning. You can do, you can go hiking, you can go camping. Um, in in a lot of ways, I think that coast is even more impressive than when you have in Acadia, and that sees very very few people you can go out and visit. So, yeah. I, you know, I think that just you know, doing a little bit of research and trying to get off the beaten path. Don't go where everybody else is going. Right. You know, for me, I've always been that person. <laughs> I like to go yeah. where no one else is. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I would love to see more people do that. Try to find places yeah. that you can then call your own. Um, right. Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of funny because, you know, there's after that judging that I did yesterday, uh, with the camera club. Actually, camera club was one of the camera clubs that I started with 20-something years ago there in North Carolina. They asked me to oh, come nice. in for judge, which is kind of cool. I saw some people there at the at, during the virtual meeting that I knew 20-something years ago there in North Carolina. Wow. And one, of the, one person emailed me, and I gave him a bunch of local places that I used to shoot around that nobody goes out and shoots in. Uh, just again to try to get some people to get out from the the big places that everybody likes to go and shoot, um, right? And, and yeah. expand their horizon and see how much more there is out there. Yeah, for sure. Be be an explorer more. Yeah, be not a follower. More. Yeah, and yeah. you know, and oftentimes it doesn't take that much. It's just you know, right. it's just doing a little. You know, but I. I used to do a seminar about finding places around you where to photograph wildlife and all this stuff that I go through to find new places. You know, oftentimes all you need to do is open up, you know, a mapping app on your device and look for places that you think may have wildlife that look open, that may be parks that you may not know existed. Right. And go visit those. There's so many of those all around us, even in urban areas. Sometimes yeah. all you have to do is drive 15, 20 minutes away and you'll find a new place to go visit. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that can be our challenge for people is to go do that. Find yeah. your local park, find your local, you know, wildlife reserve or something and and uh, explore it and find something new. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it is so satisfying to find a place that you're like, holy moly, this place is amazing and no one goes here. One of the right. places that I was telling this, that I emailed this person about is a swamp that was not far away from my house that I would go in my kayak in. And go in there to photograph, especially in the spring, photograph prothonotary warblers, all sorts of other warblers nest, nesting in this in the in the spring. And I would get out of my kayak, be standing in water. One time I got out and I had like 20 leeches on me, and I didn't care. Oh, <laughs> it was the best thing ever, you know? And I kept yeah. going and going to that place. And I took people there. <laughs> and it was a place that I discovered. So for me, even to this day, it's super special because it's a place that I discovered that was just amazing. Yeah. Um, the amount of stuff that I could photograph there from from yeah. warblers, there was a, her a heron rookery there, pileated, oh, nice. you know, frogs. I mean, all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love hearing these types of stories of of connecting with the landscape and feeling that connection even decades later. You know. Yeah. No, I mean, it was funny because he was asking. You know, he was showing me pictures of one of the most popular places to photograph, and he makes some great pictures there. I said, "Hey, 
you know, you may want to check this place that I used to go to and I give him directions how to get there or whatnot. So we'll see if he, yeah. if he follows through and then ends up going there and uh, checking it out. Yeah. Nice. Well, before we wrap things up, are you up for doing a lightning round? Um, sure. I'm not exactly sure what a lightning round is, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> I'll just ask you a bunch of questions. And first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite subject to photograph? Uh, Moscox. Okay. Uh, what is your most recommended book on photography or creativity? Ooh, um, interesting. So the first thing that came to mind is almost any book by David Quammen. David Quammen mm -hmm. is my favorite natural history writer. Nice. Okay. Great. Is there anyone that stand, stands out in particular? Um, Boilerplate Rhino is probably one of my favorite books oh, from him. So mm -hmm. yeah. I'll definitely check it out. Yeah. <laughs> what is your favorite thing about what you do? Um, the fact that I get to explore new places and have new experiences. Every time I go somewhere, I see something that I haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. So that even is by far. Visit. Yeah, yeah, even places I visit over and over again, I see something new I hadn't seen before. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's it could be something that I saw there, but sometimes is, you know, I think I have one of the best jobs in the world because, you know, people, I take people to these places, they pay me to take them to these places, and oftentimes I learn from them as well. Mm, that's um, beautiful. Yeah. So it's kind of neat at the same time. Yeah, yeah. What's something that people would be surprised to know about you? Um, that I'm an introvert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's challenging, isn't it? I mean, I'm yes. an introvert too, but like to, to, you know, teach and lead and be on mm -hmm. and all of that. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. It's, it's um, funny because in general, I'm an introvert, but if it's with photographers that kind of share the same thing. Yeah. It's different. Do you know what I'm right. saying? Yeah. I, I like to say that I'm an introvert that likes people. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> See, I, I wouldn't go that far, but <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't like a lot of people, but I like. There you this. go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right. Final question: uh, What does connecting with nature mean to you? Um, staying sane. Yeah, staying sane. I mean, that's you know, it, you know. I, I think that um, you know the hardest thing for me during the pandemic was you know being cooked up at home for so long. Yeah. You know, and I'm lucky that I live in a place like like Maine that we were able to get out and see things. But you know, I, my getting out and seeing things is kind of a different level because I travel so much, and right. the fact that I wasn't able to get out and connect to all these places that I love so much, that I love going to every year, was you know, it was pretty hard. It was probably one of the first times in my life that I really felt depressed yeah. during the pandemic. So, yeah. Well, I'm glad that that was able to turn around for you yes, in 2021. Yeah, yeah. And now it looks like 2022 is <laughs> going to be on fire. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be crazy. But, you know, I, I look forward to I, I thrive in that. So, yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, if people wanted to learn more about your your workshops and your photography, and I understand actually you have a new YouTube channel that you've, you're starting. Where can people find out to learn more about all these things? So the, the best thing is just to go to my website, which is juanpons.org. Um, there should be links there to everything that I do. I have two YouTube channels that I do stuff in. Um, my own YouTube channel where I do a lot of stuff related to Sony because that's what I shoot. Um, and then I have another channel with a good friend of mine, David Swindler, called Images in Focus, where we tackle sp specific subjects in photography and do deep dives on them. Um, like we did a two part series on lenses and we talked about every single little aspect of lenses, what to look for, um, or whatnot. 
Um, but yeah, but if you go to my website, you should have links there to my the, the, the YouTube channels as well as all my workshops and social media, all that kind of good stuff. Okay, great. Well, we'll put all the links in the show notes so that people can find them. And uh, thank you again. This was really, really fantastic. I'm so glad that you you took the time to, to chat with us today and share with us your passion for wildlife and nature and your stories have been wonderful. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I definitely always enjoy talking to someone that, you know, like the, the, the questions that you ask were questions that not a lot of people ask when I do these interviews, which is kind of neat that you thought about the process and thought about, you know, questions that really matter. So that was great. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Well, thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Juan. And again, you can find out more about his photography and workshops at juanponds.org. And I highly recommend checking out his new YouTube channel as well. And all of the relevant links will be in the show notes on the Outdoor Photography Podcast website. Again, thank you, Juan, for coming on the show and for the great conversation. And thank you, dear listener, for sticking around to the end. I appreciate you, and I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode and that you are inspired to go do some wildlife photography. I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll give you a tip and answer your submitted questions. So if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a Tidbit Tuesday, just click the link in today's episode description or head on over to outdoorphotographypodcast.com and you'll be able to record your short message there. And until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.